Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining me today is our regular guest, our medical director, Dr. Rob Dixon. Good afternoon, everyone. And we're going to broach a topic today that we've been hammering home here in Montgomery County, really, for the past 12 to 18 months. And we're going to tell a little bit of a story. We're going to do a who, what, when, and why structure to our discussion today. And it centers around an extension of the concept of high-risk, low-frequency events. And these are vital to EMS training and quality efforts across the United States. This is well-recognized. And as we took a look at our sedation events, and as we considered the sedation events that have occurred across the country over the past three, four, five years, it made me think, and I'm not sure if it was you or if it was me or how it came up in conversation, but at some point it became obvious, especially when paired together with high-risk refusals, that there are definitely high-risk, high-frequency events in EMS and in emergency medicine. So we don't need to rehash those cases over the past three to five years related to chemical sedation and patient deaths. We know about those. Uh, we know that there's tons to learn from those. We know that we have to grow as, you know, healthcare providers and part of the healthcare system as EMS as a core. We have to grow from those. But this led us in the quality department, in the clinical department at MCHD down a pretty circuitous pathway to reduce patient risk related to chemical sedation. So brings into play the focus of our episode today, and that is the, our MCHD snores safety bundle. So snores, S-N-O-R-E-S, just like when you rattle the roof at 3 a.m. snoring with your uh, need for CPAP and sleep apnea, not me or not you, but people in general, that's what we're talking about today, the snores safety bundle. And we're going to open with who of the who, what, when, and why structure. So who gets the snores safety bundle applied at MCHD before we even get into what it is? Yeah, a good, great starting point, Casey. It's absolutely every patient that receives a sedative dose of midazolam, ketamine, or droperidol, which are our sedatives here at MCHD that we utilize. And this is regardless, they get the entire bundle. It's not part and parcel, which was kind of the previous practice is the patient, some would get this whole thing and some would get, but it was all provider dependent. What if they're young? Doesn't matter if they're young. It doesn't matter what their physiology is. What if they're healthy? Doesn't matter if they're healthy to begin with. Doesn't matter that they're sad is normal to begin with. This is a patient safety bundle to increase that margin of safety. Even if everything is normal, their physiology is normal, if they get a sedative dose at our service of midazolam, ketamine, or droperidol, they get this entire safety bundle. And that's the way we designed it to increase that level of safety with patients. So you could make the same argument during DSI. Well, why should I have apneic oxygenation? It, it may not do anything if it only takes me a minute to intubate the patient. But what if we can't intubate the patient immediately? What if we need to deploy a rescue? So we're, we're planning and putting up the patient safety bundle for the events that could happen 
not the ones that usually happen. So you're saying that we can't predict when the patients are going to decompensate, just like in a DSI situation, we put apneic oxygenation on as a safety net every single time. There's a gigantic patient population Danish anesthesia study that looks at, hey, can you predict a bad airway? And guess what? Even the anesthesiologist can't. The same thing holds true for chemical sedation, even if you're young, even if you're normal, physiologically, quote unquote, because you're getting sedated for a reason. So you're probably not really normal physiologically, even if you're young, even if you're healthy. This is in place every single time in every single sedated patient. So what is it? Tell the listeners what what snores is. I'm going to go for the snores, but I'm going to reiterate something Casey just said. They usually are not super healthy. This is a very at-risk. When you think about the patient population that gets sedated in the first place, they really don't fit very well in this category we just discussed because they have a very, very high risk a priori. The fact that we're having to give them a sedative dose of anything, you have all kinds of nasty players in there like toxins and postictal from seizures and withdrawal syndromes and meningitis and encephalitis and sepsis and all kinds of nasty stuff. So the mortality and the risk of these patients, just to begin with, the fact that they required sedation by EMS makes them super high risk. I guess I'll pause one more time before we hit actual snores and remind all the listeners out there, our MCHD medics better know this, but we sedate patients for medical reasons, not for reasons of convenience. It probably goes without saying, but it's worth just hammering home in the middle of this discussion. So what, what is snores? So you've got sure. a patient, they're agitated, they're hypoxic, they're trauma delirium, they're medical delirium, they're encephalitis, meningitis, subdural hematoma, bupropion overdose, you name it. You they're it. fighting us. They won't let us monitor them. We cannot get them on the stretcher. They're pushing, they're pulling, they're hitting, they're scratching. We go for 10 milligrams of IM droperidol, and what next? As soon as we possibly can, position of safety. So if they're prone, roll them over and sit them up. We ventilate better that way. And then apply the following, SpO2 monitoring, nasal cannula and tidal CO2, supplemental oxygen, we use six liters by nasal cannula here, a RAS score, so we need to document the why of why we sedated the patient, and finally, an electrocardiogram. So SpO2 monitoring, nasal cannula and tidal CO2, supplemental oxygen, RAS score before and after, and electrocardiograph. With sugar at the end. Don't yes. forget the snores. Oh, I, I forgot my S. I'm sorry. The doctor doesn't need to know the protocol. <laughs> <laughs> you, guys, you guys out there listening can laugh at that one. So the key here is that these are every single time. These are not just in times where we anticipate sickness. These are not times where the patient appears hemodynamically unstable, hypoxic, abnormal before sedation. This is every single time. So who... Sedated patients, what the snores bundle, when and where every single time here at MCHD. The snores with the S on the end. With the, with with the, the sugar, doctor. Don't forget the sugar. So the why portion of this I'm going to take because to me this is probably the most interesting part of the pathway in real life as this happened here at MCHD. And we're, we're pretty proud of this safety bundle. We've seen some really excellent results, but it didn't happen 
as perfectly as you might think. And there were some U-turns and roadblocks and wrong ways on a one-way street. So how did this all start? Where did this focus come from? And the idea for this came from our initial look into our ketamine sedation patients here at MCHD. And why did we look closely at our ketamine sedation patients? Well, if you need me to tell you that, then you've probably had your head in the sand for the past three to five years. We saw the cases from Colorado, from Minnesota, from South Carolina, from here in Texas, amongst many, many others that involved sedating restrained patients in EMS and bad outcomes. And at the same time, we were also concerned for potentially losing ketamine here in uh, Montgomery County or in Texas. We also, in conjunction, saw, hey, droperidol's back. We need droperidol. We like droperidol. It's going to be a just a banger of an addition to our uh, pharmacologic toolbox. So we're doing all these things at the same time. Please listen to our Digging Up Droperidol podcast for more information on droperidol. But when we look at our ketamine patients in the rearview mirror, what did we find? We found they were still getting hypoxic. So I'm going to take the why here and the why of the snores bundle. And this one comes from an honest story that had U-turns and had roadblocks and had wrong ways on one-way streets. And the reality is this is how it should happen in real life when you think about clinical and quality metrics within EMS. But it wasn't perfect. If, if you need to know why we were looking at our ketamine sedation patients closely in an EMS system in the United States over the last five years, you probably had your head in the sand. We were concerned. We did not want to lose ketamine. We also, at the same time, were rolling out droperidol because we like droperidol and it was an excellent pharmacologic fit for us here in Montgomery County and has been. So in doing both of those things and being concerned about our ketamine sedation procedural actions, like any medical directors, all the medical directors across America have been or should have been over the past five years, in conjunction with rolling out droperidol, we decided to look back at our ketamine sedation data, and we found pretty concerning things in looking at that. We found that almost a third of our ketamine patients got hypoxic after they were administered ketamine. And we said to ourselves, that's, that's not great. We don't like that. But we're going to do, introduce droperidol, and that's going to do what? It's going to just fix that problem. We're going to introduce droperidol. It's going to fix it. Yes, 30% is too high. We don't like that. But we've got a new medicine. It's going to be safer. It's going to cause less apnea. It's going to cause less hypersecretion, less laryngospasm, all the benefits of droperidol over ketamine, and then it's going to solve our problem. So three months before we introduced droperidol, over that three-month time period, we had 156 sedated patients with a hypoxic rate, like I said, 30%. Three months after the droperidol rollout at MCHD, we sedated 123 patients. So 156, 123 pretty reasonable three-month time period. Guess what our hypoxic rate was the three months after droperidol rollout? Spoiler alert here. Exactly the same. 30%. So we sat down and said, well, it didn't solve our problem. What next? What can we do? Yeah, I mean, we looked at the data. This is not perfect peer-reviewed, ready-for-peer-reviewed data. This is, you know, when you review and you dig down into these charts, there's certainly a one-off that the pleth wasn't correlating or uh, the patient was peri-arrest, and so it didn't. It, it may be an erroneous reading or 
impossible to read. That being said, if you have a third of your events that have a hypoxic event at any point in there, you have more risk than, than we would like. And so we thought, we've, regardless of the data, we're not going to dice it and slice it here. That's for another paper in peer review. We're going to be proactive about it and try to work on that number. You could say how many of those were hypoxic before. You could dice it and slice it lots of ways. At the end of the day, a third to us is, uh, was an unacceptable rate. So we said, how can we combat this? If a pharmacologic entry wasn't the answer, what are we not doing? And I was not here in the office the day of the development of snores. But when I walked in the next day, everyone was walking around glowing and excited and legit excitement because we value patient safety here at MCHD. We think there is nothing better than risk mitigation and risk limitation. And so there was a whiteboard that looked like someone had solved, you know, some nuclear physics problem. And in the middle, cleared around all the scribbles was snores vertically, S-N-O-R-E-S. And the idea was, hey, look at delayed sequence intubation. Look at Dr. Jarvis's airway management safety bundle. Why should we not apply those same tenets, those same foundations to our sedation, restraint, droperidol, ketamine, midazolam patients? And that's where the idea was born. And we introduced it. We made a infographic flyer. It was the focus of CE for a full week. Everyone got education on the snore safety bundle. We put chart reminders. We put these into our quality and our QA buckets for our quality reviewers and our chart reviewers to look at. And what did we find? In the three months, three months, so six months total before snores, ketamine and midazolam only, then droperidol added. So we had 279 patients with a hypoxic rate of 30%. In the six months post-snores, we sedated 286 patients, so similar numbers, with a hypoxic rate of only 19%, 30% down to 19%. We decreased it almost in half, over 10%. Now, not scrub numbers, but from a rough, even 36,000-foot view standpoint, that's a pretty impressive, and for us, a pretty... Uh, anxiety relieving number huh yeah and i think the you know we we have not gotten super granular with the numbers but that being said the trend is for mild hypoxemia as well and not those critical events that we were seeing you know 80 and below uh or some type of bradycardia bradycardic event along with it so not only a decrease of about 10 percent in the hypoxic rate overall but a decrease in those critically low ones that you're really especially worried about and if you're interested and want to learn more about our data and, and where we're at with this, we're in the process of trying to, to clean this up for an abstract submission, hopefully this year, and potentially peer review into next year. There's monitor data to dig through, and you know the uh, inclusion-exclusion process on this one is going to be a little bit murky. We're going to do our best to work it out. But in the end, we feel like this has been really a vital risk reduction tool for us and it's the same concepts as, as Dr. Jarvis's DSI safety bundle. Rather than waiting for the airway to turn bad, just plan on them all being bad and set up a safety net, proactive as opposed to reactive.
And I would add one more thing to that. This has actually changed my practice, Casey, because when I'm in the hospital and when I'm with the resident physicians particularly, I say set up the safety bundle now. And now they all know what I mean by that. And what do they get? Sans the RAS, they get this bundle here. Because when you think about a critically ill trauma patient, medical patient, they're arriving on scene, rushed into the ED, you're still dealing with a lot of unknowns and undifferentiated potential badness. So once you've declared as sick in my practice, you get this entire safety bundle and I would add plus some defib pads. And then if everything's hunky-dory and after your initial primary secondary survey, your CAT scans, this and that, I just remove the safety bundle. No one is harmed by that. Brass, even for us in the emergency department, is important. And that's the one part of snores that you could probably say, you know, what's the rich, Richmond agitation sedation score? Who who cares? And the reminder there for everyone is the sheer magnitude of making this decision. And we have to make this decision with a patient-centered approach, and we have to document why this was necessary. We're in the ED. We're walking into a room. In the EMS setting, we're walking into someone's home. And we're going to tranquilize them and say that they're not fit to care for themselves or they're unsafe to care for themselves. We need to sedate them to better do that ourselves. We better have a good reason to do that. And so the RAS portion is important for us all to document. No, I I, I think either I misspoke or you misheard, but I don't exclude it for the ones where I'm sedating for agitation, either traumatic delirium or medical delirium. I'm saying on all sick patients that declare is sick, i.e. they turn up, pitch up at 2 a.m. The story from EMS is they've been ejected out of their car, found on the roadway, right? That patient gets a full safety bundle. We assume that those patients are going to be critically ill. So So you're you're saying, no, you didn't. I'm I'm saying saying any sick patient deserves this safety bundle if they are requiring sedation for agitation, either traumatic or medical. Absolutely, I add the RAS. I think it helps us quantify, and it paints a picture of how critically ill our patients are. I misheard. How do you do it? Let's close with how you do it. And really, it's going to take a multifaceted approach. So I've uh, very ingeniously coined the five Ps. So first, before you even get to the sedation part, you've got to use your partnerships. And you've got to use your partnerships proactively as well. So it's vital that us in the EMS world are reaching out to our partners in law enforcement and whether you're a third service EMS system like we are here at MCHD, we reached out to our fire partners as well. If you're all under the same roof, you may still need to reach out to your fire partners and discuss how we're going to manage these patients as a team before you even get to the scene. This should be tabletop. This should be continuing education. There should be education from medical medical direction down on pharmacology approach, literature basis, and literature foundation for doing these things. And then when we arrive on scene, we also have to partner with the families and the folks who are with our patients to let them know the gravity of the situation and why we're doing what we're doing. I so think partnerships, in, in, key. Incredibly important that you added the family in there, Casey, right? This is an incredibly sick group of patients and understand that there is peril in sedation sometimes, but there's also peril in doing nothing. And so that needs to be made clear to the family 
in a way, right? Partner with those families, get them on your side. In the vast majority of the times, they are, right? If we're advocating for the best thing for the patient's safety, they're going to be on your side. So we've not got to the patient yet. We're still pre-patient. Even in, before you even get the call, we need partnerships with law enforcement, partnerships with our first responders. When we arrive, we have to have partnerships with the family. Preparation is going to work in the same way. And that's more mental preparation as a crew. When you see call notes and you see that you're going on a call to a agitated, bizarrely behaving, severe MVC, altered mental status, you, you could insert 17 or 18 dispatch determinants here. But if you're going to take care of an altered mental status patient, you need to be prepared and think about monitor, suction, adjunct airways, defibrillation pads, and how you're going to proceed with preparing for that patient and preparing for the next P, which is the pharmacology. So pharmacology, droperidol, midazolam, ketamine, whatever is in your quiver. So it's MCHD, those are our, our medications of choice here. At your agency, it may be a little bit different. We've lectured around the country on this this year, and it's been great to talk to our colleagues on what they have and and the kind of why behind that. So. I think that these concepts stay consistent regardless of what sedative we use. I think it's still safer for the patients. It's just a good patient-centric way to approach this. So you're in route. You've thought about your preparatory steps, your monitor, your suction, your adjuncts. You've thought about your pharmacology and whatever your doses and whatever your sedatives are in your service. Prep those. Prep those in route with your partner. Talk through them. Dry run. That's going to make your medication error rate decrease. And then when you get to the patient, you mentioned it earlier, but it's a hardcore A1, absolute vital P in the five P's, and that's positioning. And the pharmacology is irrelevant. The preparation is irrelevant. The partnerships are irrelevant if we keep patients positioned in a way that puts them at risk for positional asphyxia. If we keep people prone, they can't breathe. So we have to get them into a supine position with the head of the bed elevated as soon as possible, every single time. And this is regardless of what sedative you're using at what dose. This is regardless of whether you're third service EMS, whether or not you're a transfer service, whether or not you're helicopter EMS. We have to have patients positioned properly after sedation, head of bed elevated every single time. Couldn't agree more. And and we understand that the practice of medicine is different in the real world than here at the, uh, at the conference table. Remember, when you use midazolam, when you use I any of these medications, right, you have different onsets. They're not going to be an immediate onset. If you've got a struggling patient that's, say, handcuffed and supine, right, are you still going to need to use some type of sedation? Yes, if you can't verbally de-escalate, you can't put monitoring on, you can't do anything else, you may need to do some sedation prior to having monitoring on. That's just life in the real world. That being said, the moment that you get control, as Casey said, you need to roll that patient. That patient needs to be put in a position of safety, which is rolled over and set up. And if they can sit up a bunch, I set them up all the way. If they can't, at least at 15 degrees head up, start assessing their airway and then put the monitoring and then down through the SNORS algorithm as the patient tolerates it. So partnerships, preparation and route, pharmacology choice and dosing discussed and and ready. Get the patient positioned properly as soon as you can and on monitoring, full monitoring snores bundle as soon as you can. And then don't forget your S 
and your E in snores, EKG, sugar, sugar, keep your differential open. And really these patients, regardless of where their agitation stems from, trauma, medical, toxicologic, infectious, this really sounds a lot like the ultramental status serial killers. So every single time, keep your possibilities open. So don't close the door and assume it's one thing. Think about your differential diagnosis. If you're only thinking about one possibility, you have to be exactly right every single time. Yeah, man, if we just assume that everybody is a drunk or on drugs, right, we miss the boat here. And we miss the boat in a very dangerous patient population where all those other gnarly diagnoses exist, those postictal from seizures and brain infections and sepsis and hypoxia from a pulmonary embolus or CHF or bad trauma. And there's lots of other bad diagnoses that live within this catch-all diagnosis of severe agitation. Partnerships, preparation, pharmacology, positioning, and possibilities. Five Ps. So that's how you do it. Let's take it home. Sedation safety should be an absolutely 100% must and EMS-wide priority. If we can't learn from our own shortcomings and mistakes, then I'm not sure what we're supposed to do. It's not a single drug or a single action problem. This is a multifactorial issue. These patients are critically ill. They're wildly, wildly heterogeneous. So we have to keep our minds open. We have to fight against premature closure. And we have to make sure that we're tackling this problem, literally, sometimes figuratively, with proper positioning, proper pharmacology, proper planning, and proper monitoring. So snores, SpO2, every time, well or sick. Nasal cannula, entitle, every time. How are we going to see hypoventilation the quickest? We're going to see rising entitle. Oh, oxygen, every time. Dr. Dixon said six liters. If it needs to be six liters, if it needs to be flush rate, if it needs to be a non-rebreather or a bag or an gel, we'll escalate that appropriately. R, RAS score. We have to justify and document our reasonings behind sedating these patients and then monitor how they progress to make sure they're appropriate and safe for transport. EKG, got to get a 12 lead. If we've got toxicologic as a big piece of these agitated, undifferentiated patients, we got to look for QRS intervals. We got to look for QTC intervals. We've got to think about the need for potential sodium bicarbonate in sodium channel blockade situations. We need to think about calcium and bicarbonate if they're severely acidotic and hyperkalemic. And don't forget the last, which is the S, the number one in this agitated altered mental status that should scream out to everyone, including myself, get a blood sugar. Think of those endocrine costs. So I'm gonna, I had to jump in and, and, and with the sugar because I forgot the S before. And how bad is it to not recognize the common and treat the easiest. I mean, how much to treat, how much easier does this get than some IM glucagon or some IV dextrose and it's a fix. That's much, much simpler. And that's when we can seal the deal and know exactly what we're dealing with. Lastly, this has to be bundled. And I would argue, I'm not trying to, to practice uh, medicine or practice medical direction for other services out there. Follow your own protocols. That's sort of a given with all of these podcasts, but if this is not taught, bundled, and mandated within your service, I would urge you to take this and champion it. Just like DSI, just like Dr. Jarvis told us, we're not very good at recognizing bad airways before we start. 
we're also not very good at recognizing agitated patients who are going to crash before we start. So put the bundle in place every time, recognize the danger, and make this a requirement for your practice. And I would agree with Dr. Dixon 100%. This is not something I'm telling our medics to do without doing the same thing in my own practice. And my own practice has become safer. I've learned from teaching and being involved with EMS in this situation for sure. And my sedation agitated patients in the ED today are much safer than they were five years ago. Anything you want to add before we wrap up? No, that's perfect. Perfect closure, Casey. Thanks for bringing this one up and thanks for having me on. We're going to sort this data for everyone. It is a little bit messy, but we're going to get through it and we're going to externally validate this and hopefully get this towards peer review here in the next 12 to 18 months so we can continue to hammer home the value of this. If you'd like more information on our snores bundle, our educational pieces, our implementation practices, you got ideas for future podcasts or ideas for additional topics, please email us podcast at mchd-tx.org. Leave us a review. Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Play Store, wherever you listen to podcasts, leave us a five star. It makes me sad. makes Dr. Dixon sadder. We'll be back again with a new episode soon. Thank you all as always for listening. Have a great rest of your day. Bye, guys. Be safe. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.